I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to the 28th episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Don Pedro de Ayala. Man, I gotta learn how to speak like you do. At least get the accents <laughs> right. I'm the worst at it. I don't speak Spanish. I was just... I mean the accent. Like, it's just, it's awesome. And I can't do it. <laughs> I should think most Spanish people are thinking, what? <laughs> Well, it sounds cool to my English ears. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, we also have new Patreons to thank. We have. We have. We've got Dark Lady M and Katriana. Thank you so much for supporting us. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, we really appreciate it. I can't mm. even tell you how much we appreciate it. We get so <laughs> happy when we've got new people that actually join not not because you're subscribing but just because it it tells us that it's actually being listened to <laughs> and yes. that it's appreciated <laughs> and that people want more yes <laughs> it's like hey we may be geeks but people like us as geeks <laughs> oh man <laughs> okay before we get started oh <laughs> yes you sound excited I... and you're happy i'm like Ugh. <laughs> Oh, no, hang on, that's not it. <laughs> I've done them. <laughs> you, we can skip it. Right. We, we can no, skip no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> Got it here. Got it here. <laughs> okay. Okay. The quiz. The quiz. Maximilian. Question number one. By what name did Maximilian refer to himself in his writing? Maxi or no. the White King. The White King. Yeah, I think Maxi was reserved for his daughter. Ah, okay. <laughs> I don't think he was Maxi to everyone. I don't think he signed himself to Henry as Maxi. <laughs> Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> Dear Henners, <laughs> love Maxi. <laughs> Question number two. In 1483, when Maximilian was having trouble finding money for the, for a war. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's all of them. <laughs> what other way did he find to make money? Was that the one where he started expelling the Jewish population? No. Okay. No. Oh, that's, yeah. Um, weird. This was in... Was that the Burgundy, penny tax? The Low Countries, no. Oh, there were quite a lot, actually. What a rubbish question this is. <laughs> I'm trying to think of all the ones he, he I'll tell you what, ignore that one. I've got five here, <laughs> okay. and that's too confusing. It was, um, he debased the coinage. You can cut that one out. Okay. <laughs> all right. Number two. In what sort of building was Maximilian held when he was kept prisoner in Bruges? I don't remember. At all. You, you said it, should, it smelt nice. The Spice House, was it? Yes. Yeah. How many questions do we normally do? Five. Oh, right. Oh, we'll have to keep that other one. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you three I answers. Think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking I'd done an extra one. Four. What was the name of Maximilian's fighting force? The Lan Landeslav? I I'm not mm. sure if I'm pronouncing that right. The They're the the Well <laughs> I don't I don't know work out how to give a clue without giving the answer. It's the basis of the word is knights, but in I don't know. I, I La Landsknecht. Landsknecht. I was yes. close. <laughs> it's servant of the land because actually knight, I was going to put it in, but it ended up being such a long episode. I didn't. Yeah, knight has quite an interesting etymology because it originally meant servant or boy. Really? Yeah. And gradually it sort of, you know, where these words that work their way up. Yes. And it became a, a follower of 
the king. Yeah. A, a sort of fighting follower of the king and then hmm. became part of the nobility. Right. So question five, what did Maximilian carry around with him in the later years of his life? Oh, his coffin. <laughs> he did. Yes, well done. <laughs> well, I think that's four and a half because that <laughs> second question was rubbish. <laughs> it wasn't rubbish. It was the date. <laughs> was like, too oh. many possible answers. <laughs> <laughs> Not too bad. Not hmm. too bad. Yep. Very good. On to the episode. Yes. Before we start with Don Pedro de Ayala, we mm. are going to use him as an introduction into diplomacy and diplomats in Europe because we haven't really spoken about them very much. Mm. Um, we are specifically looking at the 1480s to the early 1500s, which is Henry VII's era. And the more I read about it, the more I realized how foreign and alien a concept it is to us now. In some ways, diplomacy was a lot like today, but in a lot of ways, is, ways it was just completely different. Like today, I lie, you lie. We both know we are lying, but we both pretend and think it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Maximilian did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, additionally, there are so many behind closed doors and secret meetings and people who are not officially a diplomat stepping in and making secret agreements. And I started thinking, no, that can't really happen today. That No, no, no. There's no way that could happen today. And then my husband was laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes, there are top secret secrets. I should think there are. Yeah. <laughs> As more and more documentation is unclassified, especially in the United States, we see that more diplomacy was negotiated in secret personal meetings that technically weren't diplomats than with the actual diplomats and councils. And the one that Jason told me that was glaringly obvious that I should have figured out because of the TV show we just watched was JFK's negotiations during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. So his brother went and spoke to some other Russian, but neither one of them were officially supposed to be talking, and the agreement was made without anybody else being aware. And I suppose it doesn't need to be documented. Not at all. Because you're not official. <laughs> yeah. So it is most definitely still occurring, and I yes. felt really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should imagine there's more of it, because it's done in cyber world now, isn't it? Where right. It's probably... Even harder to keep tabs on everything. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. But back to the 1400s. Some of the biggest differences between then and now, I guess, could be who was chosen, why they went, where they went, and how they were paid, which would then affect their loyalty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Diplomats were chosen for a variety of reasons, and none of them was for education in diplomacy, believe it or not. They were chosen for their ability to speak the language of the country they were going to go to. That, that helps. Yes. <laughs> Familiarity with that country's customs and laws. Contacts they may already have in that country regardless of whether or not they were at court. It's amazing how many things were picked up in pubs during this time. Oh. <laughs> it's almost like a lot of this stuff that I read was actually negotiated over drinks in a pub. 
really? <laughs> yeah. Is that specifically when diplomats came to England or is that yes. Europe-wide? I don't know if it's Europe-wide. Mm. It did happen in France as well. They would go to a drinking establishment and hire a room that was separate from the rest of the pub. And that's where they'd talk. And then mm. we find that in some of the Baston letters. <laughs> right. How it was some of the discussions were overheard and then bandied about on the streets of London. <laughs> so maybe not as top secret as well, now. A lot more thing I think a lot more things did happen in pubs because you find books with the publisher's name and it says under the sign of the bull at in Cheapside or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so they're actually staying at a pub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, top secret doesn't seem to be secret at all during the Tudor mm. era, at least in England, because you'd be having these discussions in a pub. And of course, if you ever go to a pub when it's fairly quiet, you can hear things going on in different rooms in the older buildings. If you knew something mm. interesting was happening in the room next door, apparently it would go quiet and everybody would be listening to the conversation. <laughs> and half of them would be spies yes. anyway. <laughs> Uh, I thought, wow, like, how did they actually manage to keep anything quiet until the treaty was signed? And I particularly thought of this with James IV of Scotland being told he could marry a Spanish princess. Mm. <laughs> Wouldn't they already know there was no Spanish princess available? <laughs> yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It really did make me think, this has got to be completely different. There are no really formal meetings at all. It was, I know you, you know me, let's see if we can figure this out. Mind you, it's been like that. It probably has only just become, in England anyway, as professional as it probably is now. Because before it was very much, did you go to Eton? Did you go to Oxford or Cambridge? Right, you're in. Okay. Oh, very much. Very much. Especially for MI5 and MI6 and oh. government. <laughs> so, yes, I think it's only recently been opened out. Hmm. If it has. That's interesting. <laughs> which I'm not entirely sure. And I honestly have absolutely no idea how Canadian diplomats are chosen. Well, I think that's why... The spies were able to get away with it, Guy Burgess and um, Kim Philby, because they had the right school. They've been to the right <laughs> university. They've all been to Cambridge. You know, they were decent, decent gentlemen. Hmm. So, but they happened to be spying for, for Russia. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, oh. mm. In addition to these kinds of items, the person's ability to negotiate was important. Not all of them managed to do it very well, though. <laughs> we'll see why. Did they have to learn on the job? They did. There was sort of an apprenticeship that happened. There was no actual school for diplomacy. So you would go under a diplomat who is already well-established at a particular court or established in dealing with a specific type of negotiation, and you would go with them and learn underneath them. There was no school. You, you literally had to learn on the job. Hmm. I should imagine that makes a lot more sense because I should, well, if I start, each court is going to be different. Yes. And you're learning something something in a school, it's going to be very, very different when you get out there. Yes, just like now. Wherever you go. Yeah. Hmm. You learn something in school and you go to apply it and you realize, hmm, doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Like when we were kids and being told you need to learn math because you're never going to have a calculator with you all the time. <laughs> 
Wrong! <laughs> they didn't know about mobile phones. <laughs> One of the biggest items that a monarch had to consider when they were choosing a diplomat is loyalty. And it turns out that's the most mm. important trait, regardless of everything else. Well, there's so much double-crossing, isn't there? Yes, and part of it is because of the problem of being paid. Mm. Not all diplomats got paid. And if they did, most of them did not get paid on time. So they might be getting backhanders from the court that they've gone to. They most definitely were. Right. And what's even more surprising is that it was so blatant. We remember Louis Twelfth paying Cardinal Wolsey and Charles Brandon for the wedding for Mary. Mm. Cardinal Wolsey, court diplomat, well, he ran the country mm. and he was getting paid by Louis XII. Mm. And he wasn't short of a bob or two back home, really, was he? No. Yeah. Mm. Since not all diplomats got paid, or if they did on time, they would supplement their income in their destination country, I guess is a way to put it. In mm. our research, we came across so many instances of diplomats sending letters back to the royal masters complaining about money and the debts they were incurring, and then going around trying to find ways to supplement their own income by advising people in their destination country, being go-between between somebody, like, we'll go with De Puebla. He would try to make a connection between somebody who approached him and the king, and he would get paid for that introduction. Oh, right, sort of lobbying. Yes. Fee. Yes. Right. De Puebla specifically often got paid for going over legal briefs before they were presented to court because he was mm. a very well-trained lawyer. So each one would have to find a new way to bring in streams of income because more often than not, they were not getting paid or their pay was not coming through on time. Is it like an ambassador would be now where they're required to put on lavish dinners and things for mm -hmm. their embassy? So would they have to do that? There was no embassy. Quite often they were housed at court, but they were expected to entertain. That was just something you did. But... Mm. Depending on your station in life, you wouldn't always be successful at entertaining people. They're snobs. If people wouldn't come. People wouldn't come. <laughs> mm -hmm. One thing that I found when I was researching diplomats was the number of diplomats that were chosen that were not wealthy to begin with that ended up going bankrupt in, quote, in the service of your majesty, end quote in their resignation letters. Why do people want, want this job? You were supposed to be able to make money. It was technically well paid by your government if they paid you. Mm. So you'd be promised a wage. Well, there's some people that became fabulously wealthy, and so people would think, well, I, yeah, this is money for jam. I could be like them. Yes. And mm. then those people quite often were supplementing their income with different mm. income streams where mm. they were located. And people who were not good at those independent streams of income, more often than not, they were the ones that seemed to go bankrupt. Yeah, if you're not, if you don't happen to be a lawyer on the side, I suppose. Yes, or a nobleman who already has independent wealth. Mm. Quite often, we'll find a lot of diplomats were noblemen who had independent wealth because they could afford to do it without the 
crown paying them. So the crown would offer them a wage, but never actually pay it. And obviously, they'd be the ones that the crown would go for because they don't want to pay the money. Exactly. Hmm. We do find that in a couple of Henry VII's diplomats. If you remember, we had a couple of people saying that they're running out of money in the king's service. Hmm. Captains of castles and whatnot. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes, common. Very, very common. In this particular episode, we will see this specific issue cause a lot of problems. We have evidence that de Puebla, the official ambassador to England during the reign of Henry VII, was owed over 2,000 maravedi, which is Spanish currency, for three years back pay of diplomatic work in England, and he would never get that money. So why did he carry on? Why did he not just say, look, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I can get better money than this. In this particular case, loyalty. To... He was fiercely loyal to Isabella specifically. Right. Not Ferdinand, specifically <laughs> to Isabella. His letters, his state letters to Spain, all are talking to Isabella. He may say, your Catholic majesties, but every so often you get a hint of that he's only talking to a female. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. Do you think Ferdinand ever saw those anyway? <laughs> I mean, we'll find out next time what he sees and what he doesn't. But Yeah, if uh, Patreon plug, sorry, I'm going to have to say this. We do know that in Isabella's Patreon episode, we did find that if she found a dipl diplomatic dispatch that she didn't want to argue over with, with Ferdinand, she would just burn it. <laughs> Make the decision and burn it so he never got to see it. So I can't wait for your Ferdinand episode now <laughs> to see if any of this actually occurred or if it's just people trying to bump up Isabella from future perspective. Mm. But yes, it will be interesting. De Puebla was one of those that was brilliant and was able to supplement his income. He specifically was charging Spaniards that were in England to approach Henry VII and the Privy Council with requests. And those requests included trading licenses, exploration licenses. He had a hand with Cabot, apparently. Oh, did he? Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I remember that. Yes. He was yes. one of the ones that actually managed to get John Cabot to speak directly to Henry instead mm. of going through the merchants that were fleecing Cabot, really. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. So he did those introductions. He was also an expert at English law. There are some claims. We do have de Puebla coming up later, so I'm not going to go too far in it. But there are claims that de Puebla was actually the most influential person and expert in English law, including being more expert than the lawyers in England themselves. So had he trained as an English lawyer or had he trained as a Spanish one and... Both. Both. Which makes sense for a diplomat. You would need to know if you're making a diplomatic agreement between the two countries. You would think you'd want to know the legal mm. framework for both countries to ensure that it would work and it wouldn't cross any laws that are already enacted. Mm. Yeah. So he was really well educated. Dayella, not so much. Loyalty became a real problem if and when, and I do say if, the diplomat managed to ingratiate himself to the monarch of the country he was diplomatically placed in. If the monarch became fond of the diplomat, they would often pay them through sinecures. 
which mm-hmm. are positions that require no work but still get a paycheck. Mm. So you can imagine if all of a sudden you're getting paid more from the monarch that you are visiting. And you're not getting paid at all back home. <laughs> yes. Loyalty becomes a big problem. Mm. So everybody which knows. Which you think would inspire them to pay the diplomats properly. You would think. Mm. But I'm not finding that anywhere. <laughs> Seems to be something. Like even Henry was, Henry VII was being paid by people to become diplomats. So Henry was making money and not actually paying them out. <laughs> Henry was just miraculous, wasn't he, in his ability yes. to other people to give him money. Yes. <laughs> Which yes. he then passed on to make political <laughs> points. <laughs> there are even diplomats that end up on the payroll of the monarch of the country they were in. So not just sinecures. Like Louis Twelfth for Cardinal Wolsey was paying him a stipend each year directly out of the exchequer. So the Royal Treasury of France was paying Cardinal Wolsey in England. So would Henry have known this? Oh, yeah. Mm. But he wouldn't feel that Wolsey was contaminated by this, that he wasn't trustworthy. Apparently not, because this started fairly early in Henry VIII's reign, and Cardinal Wolsey remained Mm. in power for a very long time. Yeah. No. There are also cases, and we will talk about one today, that the monarch continued to pay that diplomat when they were transferred to another country or went home in the hope that they would ensure. Yeah, I can imagine that would be quite handy, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes, it would. (laughs) They were hoping that that would ensure that the diplomat kept them informed of negotiations and, if possible, steer those negotiations in a way that was advantageous to the third-party monarch. Mm. Yep, very sensible. Maximilian appears to have employed this tactic in a few situations. So he did have spies. <laughs> yes, he did. Although I don't know if you could call them spies when they're very openly getting the money and Henry was aware of it. Mm. Does that make them a spy? Hmm. Uh, no. No, I think you have to be a bit secretive. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> The flip side of these relationships are also true. The monarch of the country a diplomat was assigned to could eject the diplomat or demand they be recalled and replaced if they didn't like it. Mm. So there you're looking at these diplomats that are being sent to a country trying to further ingratiate themselves to that country's monarch, not only for their money, but also to ensure that they had a position while pay from their home was never a certainty, if you were ejected, that was definitely going to reduce the possibility of you even getting an income, and you would lose status. That was yeah. huge. I'd have thought that if you haven't managed to ingratiate yourself with the monarchy, then you're not going to be able to do your job as a diplomat, are you? I mean, the, the monarch no. is not going to take him in, take you into their confidence. No, and I do remember one, I'm trying to remember the name of the diplomat, because it just occurred to me, in Elizabeth's reign, she ejected one diplomat because she didn't like his attitude, and he went to another country where he was a sub-diplomat and spent the entire time raging about how horrible Elizabeth was (laughs) rather than doing his own job. 
And everybody in England was worried that he was going to be taken seriously and that would damage diplomatic relationships with France because that's where that diplomat ended up getting sent to. It never did. The guy guy was just sort of deemed to be ranting. Yeah, I think if if you've only got one topic of conversation, people would quickly pick up on that, wouldn't they? Yes. So it's a strange dichotomy that you want somebody who's fiercely loyal to you But you're putting them in a situation where they're going to get paid by somebody else. And if they want to be successful, they have to be able to really ingratiate themselves with that particular monarch. And how Mm. do you do that without being more loyal to that monarch than yourself that has sent them there? It it really does put them in an awkward situation. Yeah, I wouldn't see. I don't see how it works. I don't see how it works Mm. either. Mm. And when you look at some of the treaties... It's almost you start wondering, like, were you really fighting for your monarch Mm -hmm. there? Because that did not turn out well for the monarch who had sent you. Mm. There are a few treaties like that. Thankfully, we don't have to talk about any of those because England did quite well for themselves. (laughs) I think Henry was quite a canny old soul, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Mm. Now... On to Pedro de Ayala. (laughs) I forgot about him. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we understand what's going on. I really wanted to put that in to tell you that what he was doing was not considered illegal, immoral, or in any way unusual. But you 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 said he was a scamp. He is a scamp. (laughs) Well, some people say scamp. Some people say horrific person. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Don Pedro Lopez de Ayala was born into the Castilian noble family of the Counts of Buena Salida in Toledo. And I apologize. I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it. We do not have his birth date, nor any information about his younger life at all. We only find out about him with his first posting as a sub-diplomat. I should imagine that's fairly normal for the time, isn't it? Yes, especially when you're a younger son. Oh, yeah. Hence why he is a diplomat. (laughs) Like most other diplomats, de Ayala moved around to different courts depending on the treaties that were being negotiated and the relationships changing between countries. Quite often, if you were at war, you would extract your diplomats before you declared war. Yeah. Or they declared on the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, we're at war now. (laughs) But otherwise, they're going to be held hostage, I suppose, aren't they? Yes. Mm. There does not appear to be uh, diplomatic immunity at this point. Right. I didn't find that anywhere. And there are numerous accounts of diplomats being arrested and held. And I found one case where they were executed. Mm. So no diplomatic immunity. It was not a safe profession in most cases. De Ayala's first diplomatic assignment was to Portugal in 1493. So he was the sub-ambassador below Don Garci López de Carbajala. Okay. <laughs> or Carbajal or Carbajal. It, I'm sorry. It, it's the same as now for England and Spain. The language has changed. So the pronunciations then are not the pronunciations mm. there. And I got like six for this name. And I didn't know which one to go with. You could think of this as that apprenticeship we were talking about. Hmm. So there are no diplomatic schools. You had to learn under another diplomat. But here's the question. You are only usually given one diplomatic assignment as a sub-diplomat or a sub-ambassador. 
you are only learning how to work with that specific court and that specific king. How does that relate when you move to a different court? I suppose you can't expect someone to to do their apprenticeship in in all the courts of Europe, can you? They've got to take the plunge on their own at some point. Yes, but you would think at least two would be Mm. a better idea than just one. We think that De Ayala was educated as a cleric. And the reason we think this is because right around this time, he was invested as the Bishop of the Canary Islands. Oh, right. The interest, interesting thing is I did not find him actually going there at any point. <laughs> I don't suppose he did. No. Nope. <laughs> they, they don't seem to bother. Well, who was the... Um, was it Castellese who became the Bishop of Bath and Wells? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Don't think he went. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I I never found him even going to the island. At least Castellese was in England at one point. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. Cushy little number, I should should imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Although we try with these non-English subjects to only mention what their direct interaction with England was, I feel like this is an important matter to England, so I did include it. De Ayala and Carbajal were in Portugal to negotiate the demarcation line between the Spanish and Portuguese maritime exploration ownership. Right. Yes. That's with the Pope. Yes. Yep. (laughs) This would greatly affect England in the future as the negotiations split the world in half between Portugal and Spain Mm. to the exclusion of every other country in the world. I know, that's unbelievable, isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> no. They have no right to it anyway. And, and the fact to... they got it ratified by the Pope. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, Henry, Henry thought, yeah, to hell with that. I'm not taking any notice of that. I'll send Kappa out to go and hover by a country for a bit and then come home again. Yes. <laughs> It it really didn't make sense to me whatsoever. It still doesn't. I doubt I'll ever understand it, other than the fact that they gave a lot of money to the Pope. But how they thought it was going to be enforced, I really don't know. And an awful lot of the world speaks Spanish. <laughs> yeah. So it they did do. work. It did work. Yeah. It's in this negotiation and the state papers for Portugal that we find a little mention of what De Ayala might have looked like. It's diplomatically glossed over everywhere else because people liked him, but Mm -hmm. King John of Portugal didn't. And he made fun of De Ayala for his limp, which was apparently quite pronounced. But it didn't affect him when he was on a horse. That makes me think it was a leg issue, either a defect or an injury, rather than a spinal issue. Mm. Because if you were on a horse and you were just as good as anybody else at jousting, that makes me think it's just the leg that has a problem. Money Rich III was all right on a horse, wasn't he? Yes. Oh, yeah, he was. Yeah. Hmm? Don't know, but it, it doesn't seem know. very nice to laugh at someone's limp. <laughs> no, no. I think we're very much in Tudor times, aren't we? Yeah. Yes, very Tudor <laughs> times. And to do so in a state paper that we can find now. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> De Alla and Carbajal. Carbajal. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did not manage to finalize the deal, but they did lay the groundwork for the next embassy to complete that transaction. If they hadn't done what they had done, it still probably would not have managed to be agreed upon. De Ayala was not the first diplomat sent to Scotland, so there's quite a bit where we don't have any information. 
But the diplomats that had visited Scotland were all short visits bringing gifts in an attempt to turn James from Perkin Warbeck. They not only failed to bring this about, but they were so disliked that James required them to attend Perkin Warbeck's wedding to his cousin, Lady Catherine Gordon, and then were sent back to Spain. <laughs> sort of a slap in the face. You want me to get rid of him? No, I'm. you are going to witness him marrying my cousin and then you're getting out of my country. They came to buy him, didn't they? Yes, and they the, did. The French, the French, the Spanish... Um, who was it? Uh, Bishop Fox? Yeah, he was sent up. Yes. And there was this bidding war for Perkin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, he, and it never happened. Yeah. He is such a huge part of this season, isn't he, Perkin? He just comes in everything. He really is. He is. He pops up absolutely everywhere. I had no idea when I used to walk past the pub in Taunton, Perkin Warbeck. <laughs> he was so so massive. James did send gifts for Isabel and Ferdinand, but refused to concede to any of their requests, even though he was already adamant that he wanted a Spanish princess for a wife. Yeah. When he chucked out the Spanish ambassadors, was that after he discovered there wasn't a princess for him? No. He still doesn't know. He just really, really did not like them. And I sort of get it. You've got Isabella and Ferdinand. Most of the diplomats appear to have come from Isabella's court, which was very, very pious and regulated. Mm. And Scotland does not appear to be that way right now. No, well, They were probably complaining about the cold. <laughs> cold, the wet, it's damp. Because the, uh, yeah, Perkins... The people who went up with Perkin were complaining about the beer as well, didn't they? So. Yes. <laughs> the Spanish diplomats did continue to keep coming, but they were all very short-lived visits to Scotland court. But none of them could get on with James in a way that would result in a long-lasting resident diplomat. Maybe James didn't realize that that was part of, part of the deal. He did because he had permanent resident French diplomats. All right. He just didn't like any of the Spanish ones. But I suppose there was the old alliance, wasn't there, with the French? Yes, yes. I don't know. Perhaps they were just unpleasant, unpleasant the Spanish ones. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, individually, not uh, not as a nation. When we see what happens with Ayala, I think you can see why the other ones weren't successful. We did just mention resident diplomats. A resident diplomat is one that got along well enough with the monarch of that country to remain for a long-term basis, and they were considered resident diplomats. That's where they were stationed. And usually, they would stay there for years on end, decades in some cases. The diplomats who went to Scotland did, however, report back about James's interests and personality, which may have helped with de Ayala later. Dr. de Puebla, a future victim of this podcast, Mm -hmm was at this time the official and resident diplomat in England. I don't think that's for his personality. I think it's for the negotiations that needed to occur between Spain and England. Mm-hmm. He was ordered by Isabella to arrange peace between England and Scotland so that Henry could join the Holy League. We're back to that. Yeah, I know. You think, well, why is Isabella organizing police treaties between two completely different countries. Yes. 
because she was very adamant that the Ottoman Turks were coming. (laughs) We need you. We need you. In order to do so, a Spanish ambassador was required to be in Scotland. De Puebla was a resident ambassador in England. He needed somebody in Scotland that dispatches could go between and they could actually get somewhere. Otherwise, he was spending months in Scotland and then months in England. And you're losing those relationships the longer you're away from people. It doesn't work that well. Hmm. Quite a long trek backwards and forwards as well, I'd have thought. Yes. De Puebla makes the fatal mistake, I think, of deciding, okay, I'm going to handle the English side of the peace negotiations, but I need an ambassador in Scotland to handle that side. Neither of the subject monarchs were keen on the idea of the marriage between Margaret Tudor and James IV. James didn't want her, and Henry didn't want to give him, give her to James IV. He definitely didn't want her, didn't he? He kept saying... (laughs) Just listen to me. I don't want your daughter. (laughs) Yes, I want a Spanish Mm. daughter, not yours. Because of this, Isabella and Ferdinand had to really consider who they were going to send, because if it was another short-term visit, it would never be successful. Mm. So based on those reports of James's interests and his personality, they choose Don Pedro de Ayala. This backfired for de Puebla so spectacularly. We spoke earlier about how diplomats were chosen. Ayala was chosen because of the reports on James' personality. None of the ambassadors succeeded in becoming influential with James, but none of those ambassadors were noblemen. Right. Not that I could find. So the first thought is, okay, we need somebody with status. He is a fam- part of the family of the Counts of Buenos Aires. Maybe that will work. He also likes to do the same kind of things James does. He likes to gamble. He likes to hunt. He likes to drink. James earlier had barely entertained Scottish diplomats' presence except to accept the gifts from Isabella and Ferdinand. You come in, you give me stuff, you get out. That was it. Dayala was sent. From all accounts, he was impetuous. He gambled like crazy, loved to hunt, partied all the time. Sorry? They all gambled a lot, didn't they? Not really in Spain. The Spanish court under Isabella gambling wasn't a huge... Yeah. I just came across a debt of Henry VII. Um, It was in one of his account books. Um, Paying off a gambling debt to his son, Prince Henry. (laughs) 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 And it was a a substantial amount as well. Yes, they gambled ridiculous amounts of money. Mm. De Ayala also liked to party, drink, and brawl. Right. That's very <laughs> diplomatic. <laughs> yes. De Ayala, it seems, would be the perfect friend to James. When he arrived in Scotland... In 1496, he immediately began to ingratiate himself with James by, and this is where we get the idea of exactly what he was like, within a week he was joining James's raiding party against the border towns of England. Right. <laughs> Did he not understand the remit of his job? <laughs> You're supposed to be making peace between them, not joining him in for the booty in the battle. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> And his poor staff. So diplomats didn't go just by themselves. They would bring and pay for their own staff to join with them. And Diala made them come with them on the raids. 
Most of them were killed in the skirmishes. That's a bit more than scampage, I think. (laughs) Yes. But it just seems... With the way they were joking and laughing, it almost is like they were going... Taking it on as a game. Mm. This is hilarious. Apparently, they were raucous the entire time, drinking every night in between the the raiding skirmishes. It just, it's such an odd thing to do. This invasion is still rather famous, apparently. It's known as the Raid of Elam. All right. And while this was not impressive for Henry VII, (laughs) about this new Spanish (laughs) ambassador, it fully endeared de Ayala to James. Do you think that's why he was doing it? Or do you think he just thought, well, hey, let's get in there? <laughs> From his later brawls that he got into with his his own staff and buddies, I would say he was just having a fun time. Mm. <laughs> James immediately requested that he stay on as resident ambassador and began socializing with Dayala almost continuously. They were now bosom buddies, never leaving your side. <laughs> he also began paying De Ayala's expenses and even rented a beautiful house for him in Edinburgh. Mm, nice. <laughs> like Edinburgh. <laughs> and then there's a mention in Scotland's exchequer rolls or treasury rolls that he also paid the damages to be repaired to the house from De Ayala. <laughs> what was he doing in there? <laughs> Parties and brawling. <laughs> It tells you quite a bit about De Ayala right there, that the monarch he's supposed to be a diplomat for is now paying out the damages that he does to (laughs) Scottish property. (laughs) But this is the first time that Spain has a permanent resident ambassador in Scotland. This was seen as a step in the right direction by Isabel and Ferdinand, regardless of how De Ayala did it. (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter if if it's doing the trick. Yes, if it's successful in her aims, do it. To be fair, somehow Isabella had been informed that no, De Ayala was not in Scotland during the raids, that he hadn't arrived yet. She, for some reason, I don't know if she's deluding herself, but she felt that if he had been, he would have been able to stop the raids since they were not helping get peace between the countries. She couldn't wrap her head around how this was supposed to help out the countries, and she was convinced De Ayala wasn't there. If he had been, it wouldn't have happened. And she tried to convince Henry of this. Henry did not believe her. Because he was there. (laughs) De Ayala was directed by Isabella to continue a very dangerous deception. As we know, James wanted a Spanish princess. Yeah. He was to keep James in line with the possibility that Isabella would allow him to marry a Spanish princess. First, he was offered Catherine of Aragon, even though the betrothal had already happened between Catherine and Arthur. So there was no chance of him having it. It's not that she was sort of weighing up the possibilities. Okay. No. And once everything was signed and Catherine was basically on her way to England, she switched him from Catherine to Maria, the other youngest that would eventually marry the King of Portugal. Hmm. So there were were Spanish princesses. It's not as if she was just making one up. No. They were there. They just weren't actually available. Correct. Hmm. They had already had negotiations and treaties in place with England and Portugal, but he was not to know that. He obviously didn't have the all the spies that Henry had, because no. Henry would have known that. Henry did know that, mm. which makes me wonder about Scottish diplomacy. 
Scotland was not a wealthy country at this time. No. Which makes me think he didn't have the money or the wherewithal to have diplomats in all these mm. different countries. But you'd have thought that Henry would have told him, because if she, if Henry wanted... Oh, he didn't want him to marry no. Margaret, did he? Yeah. So he would have kept his mouth shut. But he did later, didn't he? Because he kept pushing, pushing her. Well, he eventually did. Yeah. But that was Isabella as well, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Mm. Yeah. Pushy, wasn't she? <laughs> she, she was bossy. <laughs> <laughs> At this point from the State Papers of Spain, we can see that Isabella really didn't want James. She just wanted him out of the way. So whatever Ayala could do, De Ayala could do to keep him busy, out of the way, and find some sort of peace, she was willing to turn a blind eye to what he was doing, which makes me also remember Pope Alexander. He was very dissolute. And she was very pious, but she was willing to ignore mm. his... Up to a what point. What did she call them? Little sins. His <laughs> right. little sins. Um, keep him out of the way of, what, of the Holy League? The Holy or? League. Yeah. Why she didn't try to get Scotland involved in the Holy League, I don't know. Yeah, because Scotland, S- Scottish troops were all over the place, weren't they? Yes, they were. As mm. mercenaries, though. I found yeah. them as mercenaries. So maybe she just thought, well, we'll pay them. And we'll get the Scottish mercenaries. We don't need to actually make concessions to the king. Yeah, you don't have to go through Scotland. Yeah. Possibly. Mm-hmm. James, I can't even explain this. He just, he f- sort of fell in love with De Ayala. He began listening to his advice about Perkin and basically being swayed by De Ayala, regardless of what his own counselors were saying. Seems like De Ayala really managed to sort of push everybody else out of the way and really influence James. And what was De Ayala saying about Perkin? That he was not the English king, that he was going to bring down Scotland with him as he fell, that look at all the money you've spent on him and absolutely nothing's come about because of it. Mm. So he was, so that's why, that's why James was suddenly anti-Perkin. Yes. And lost interest in him completely. It looks entirely to be De Ayala. Oh, right. Not his counselors. His counselors were still looking at the fact that even if Perkin wasn't going to end up the English king, he was a great distraction so they could take more land from the northern England. Mm. I assumed, I I thought it was when they went to attack England and then Perkin got disillusioned. Not not surprisingly, given that they were meant to be going in peace and they really weren't. Yeah. This is one of those things, again, where you start looking at somebody else completely and you get a completely different point of view of what happened with Mm. additional information that wasn't available when you're looking at one specific person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It could also, we do have to always take this with a grain of salt. The state papers are written by David Ayala sending them to Isabella and back and forth. So he could be painting himself in just an amazing light. Yeah, he's he's telling her that he's doing what she sent him to do. Yes. But when you look at the fact that James's counsel was very pro-Perkin, mm. there had to be some change, and the change does happen when Dayala arrives in Scotland. Mm-hmm. It's circumstantial evidence. Oh, yeah. Dayala must have been charismatic. Everybody he seems to have spoken to, James, some of his counselors, other nobles in Scotland, seem to listen to him. You start seeing behavior changes that didn't occur for the 10 years before, and they don't happen until De Ayala is in Scotland. 
So while it's circumstantial, it's pretty weighty that he would go to a dinner and the next day you'd see a letter going out from that person changing their minds. Mm. I would say that he must have been charismatic and that he was at least the catalyst of change. Maybe not the source of the change, but he helped it along. Most monarchs would summon a diplomat when they wanted to see them, or the diplomat would have to formally request audiences. De Ayala's presence with James was so much more prevalent. He was always at court. He was always with James. He was hunting with James. He was gambling with James. It's almost like he was just a brother. He'd show up and he would have an audience with James without any formal request Mm. ever happening. Well, apart from the rather undiplomatic bit of joining in battles against (laughs) the English, he sounds like the perfect, perfect person to be sent there. Yeah. Yes. It does also tell you, though, that maybe it's his personality and company rather than any diplomatic skill that may be the reason why it's successful. Yeah. But then if that's what gets through to James, that's what you need. Yes. Because if he was, if he found diplomats a bit, he might have found them quite intimidating, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Or just standoffish. Mm. If if somebody is disagreeing with your behavior, it doesn't make you like them. No. Whereas this guy's not only going, hey, yeah, let's do it. He's saying, <laughs> let's do it. Mm. Not just you. I'm coming too. <laughs> yeah. De Puebla realized that this was a problem, and I think he also saw that this was going to be difficult specifically for him. He's trying to make pace between Scotland and England, and De Ayala is actually joining in raids against England with the Scottish king. Mm. It's going to be a little difficult for De Puebla. And Henry knew this. Henry did know this because de Puebla was instructed to calm Henry, who was more than a little unhappy about the raids. And he also told Henry that he had suspicions regarding de Ayala and what he was actually doing in Scotland, that he was acting for himself rather than for Spain or England, which could be true. We don't really know. Hmm. He might have just gone, he might have not had any um, any feeling at all about the job. He might have just been sent there because he was the right part, personality. The right personality, the right nobility, and just thought, oh, I like this bloke. Let's, let's just have a really <laughs> good time. <laughs> yes. But then there's De Ayala, who also looked at the things he was seeing from De Puebla, because De Puebla was, they were having to write each other back and forth trying to start this negotiation sanctimonious is one of the words used so yes they are not best friends and this does not start off their relationship very well in fact there's almost a 10-year feud between the two yeah i knew that it didn't get on yes i had come across (laughs) that on several occasions (laughs) they both tried to take each other down every chance they could and this was de puebla first trying to take him down through henry You've got to get him out of Scotland. So here I've requested this person come to Scotland, or I've requested a diplomat to come to Scotland. This is not going well. Henry, get him recalled, get him recalled, get him recalled. So he's trying to destroy De Ayala's entire career. And did Henry get in touch with Isabella and say, take this man away? Yes, which is why De Puebla was then given instructions by Isabella saying, you need to calm Henry. We finally have somebody who's 
actually been invited to be a resident diplomat in Scotland, you need to work with him. Whoops. Mm. <laughs> I can't imagine De Pablo was happy with that. God, he must be furious. <laughs> De Ayala began negotiations then with Richard Fox, the Bishop of Durham, who was representing Henry because... It looks like he refused to talk to the Puebla. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, the two Spanish diplomats are not willing to speak to each other. So I'll go past you and go to Richard Fox. So it was that way. Ayala didn't want to speak to de Puebla rather than the other way around. Both. Both ways. <laughs> de Puebla did not want to deal with de Ayala. De Ayala didn't want to work with de Puebla. And... Because they needed to do this negotiation, de Pueblo was furious that Bishop Fox went because this was his position, this was his job, and he's losing face. Mm. I'm assuming that James probably stepped in and said, nope, de Ayala wants Bishop Fox because he's following everything de Ayala is saying. So now Bishop Fox goes up there to do the negotiations. <laughs> they must have been laughing stock. I mean, amongst other people in both courts. I don't know. Two, two diplomats from the same country that can't get on. At all. Mm. And very vocal about the fact that they don't like the other person. So they're even undermining themselves, I think, at the yeah. same time as they're supposed to be doing all this. The negotiations with Dayella and Richard Fox didn't progress, but not because of any failure of them, but because James still was unwilling to give up Perkin entirely. Bishop Fox wanted him to catch Perkin, or at least hold him, and then hand him over to Henry. And James mm. wasn't willing to do that yet. John Leslie provides us with our first description of Dayella during these negotiations. He says, in Scots, so this is as close to English as I could find, that Dayella was pious, cunning, prudent, and wise. Although, honestly, I don't see any of those traits anywhere in his description. No, that's not the image I'm getting at the moment. <laughs> not at all. Ultimately, though, De Ayala was successful in Scotland regarding Perkin. Perkin was expelled. He was not given to Henry, but he was expelled without all the support he was promised. Was he expelled or was he... Because he was given a boat, wasn't he? He was given the cuckoo. Yes, but the cuckoo turns out not to be a Scottish ship either. Right. James would only give him an impounded French ship rather than providing him with a Scottish one. And he was expelled. He was told he could not stay in Scotland. Right. I thought he was just sort of ushered out and, yeah, being told, right, leave now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to make a big thing of it, but just leave the country. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But not because of anything that Perkins seems to have done. It seems to be the influence of De Ayala saying, look, this isn't good for Scotland. You're spending a ton of money. You're not getting anywhere with this. And James listened. So while he hadn't succeeded in peace yet, he had at least gotten Perkin out of Scotland. And then James decided to gather forces and head to Bishop Fox's own castle at Norham. Oops. Yeah. And De Ayala was there. Oh, God. He and James were gambling and betting on the outcome of the battle. <laughs> And that's very well known because <laughs> James lost and had to pay him the money. <laughs> and was Bishop Fox there 
at the castle? No, Bishop Fox was not there. Thankfully, could you imagine? That would be even worse. But the fact that you've got a Scottish ambassador and James gambling on other stuff and then saying, I bet you this, that you will not succeed in taking the castle. It's just too big. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So was it the bet that caused the raid? Did, did no, you say, I no. Bet you, I bet you wouldn't, you can't do it. And James said, I bet I can. And then went off and did it. They were already, they were already, they were okay. already besieging the castle when the bet came about. Because that would be terrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he only did it because of a bet with Tia Yella. <laughs> he didn't just join the raid. He, in, he instigated it. <laughs> no. Later that year, De Ayala helped with the negotiation, and it worked. He managed to arrange a seven-year truce between England and Scotland in September 1497 as the commissioner to the Scottish king, which means he was in charge of the negotiations, not a Scottish diplomat. He had supplanted the Scottish diplomats. Yeah, I didn't see the... uh point of that then. But yes, that's quite a thing, isn't it? It's huge. (laughs) Absolutely huge. This is not normal. I could find nowhere where a third-party diplomat actually runs the diplomacy. Quite often they will be there to give advice or to witness or to make suggestions, but he was taken over the full negotiations for a king that was not his, Hmm. which is an honor to him, but at the same time, Where's your loyalty? Slap in the face for the Scottish ones as well. Yeah, but nobody seemed to mind in Scotland. That's the thing. That's why it makes me think he's charismatic and more of a scamp because he was hanging out with all of them, going to the parties, drinking with them, having a great time. Maybe none of the Scottish courtiers wanted peace with England. Possibly. They were there. There were Scottish diplomats there, but they were not the ones speaking. Hmm. It's really, really interesting to read the state papers going back and forth and seeing how much comes out of De Ayala and not from a Scottish diplomat. Hmm. It's strange. This was the treaty that required the kings not to harbor the other king's rebels, specifically Perkin. Perkin had already left. Yeah. So now he's not in Scotland. So this just prevents him from coming back to Scotland. He was on that weird bit where he sort of disappeared for a while, didn't he? And he was somewhere in Ireland. We think he's in Ireland. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) De Ayala also managed to add in the treaty that Isabel and Ferdinand would be able to arbitrate disputes in the future. Okay. Which is Hmm. also different. Yes. Basically, that makes him the arbiter. Yeah. Because he's on hand for Scotland. Yeah, I can't quite see how that sort of got through. A third country. Yes, with their own interests, Mm. now arbiting feuds between two other countries. Mm. I think when I was reading this, I was trying to wrap my head around it. James was now firmly friends with De Ayala, so he trusted him. I trust that you're going to negotiate in my best interest. Why? He is not a Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but that seems to be where they're at. And then you've got Henry on his side, who is, at this point, they still have not finalized Catherine and Arthur's wedding. So I could see him being willing to make this concession to further ingratiate himself with Isabella and Ferdinand to get Catherine. Mm. Yeah, that side seems logical. Yes, the James side 
still not sure. Hmm. Later in 1498, so a year later, de Ayala again negotiated additions and extensions to this treaty. He again headed the diplomatic group that went to England to do the negotiation. Now, de Ayala and de Puebla, as I said, were already at odds, each attempting to outdo each other in any way they could. De Puebla hated de Ayala and his actions. I'm not surprised. No. I mean, he's undermining the whole system all the time. Yes. Yes. And his complaints are very valid. He is always saying how unprofessional de Ayala is, Hmm. how impious de Ayala is. He's supposed to be a bishop after all. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I've got that. (laughs) (laughs) And how unreliable he is. He's supposed to be helping de Puebla with a specific task, and he keeps going off on other things and not helping de Puebla at all, which I think is more along the lines of de Ayala saying, I'm going to get you in this way. Mm. I can't out and out smack you across the face, (laughs) but I can at least stop you from getting what you're charged to do with by Isabella. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This would not have been too huge a problem with them not getting along, believe it or not, as long as de Ayala stayed in Scotland, which he didn't. Right. James sent him as the Scottish ambassador to England with a single Scot joining him named Andrew Foreman to give gifts to Henry. So now he is the lead Scottish ambassador being sent to England by the Scottish monarch, even though really he's the diplomat for the Spanish monarchs. Into where de Puebla, de Puebla presumably already is. looks at it at it as its own little kingdom. Yes. Mm. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> light, light in the blue touch paper. <laughs> yes. This would have been the first legitimate entry for de Ayala into right, England. Yes. But it is his first meeting with Henry. They met November 25th, 1497, and Perkin was there as a prisoner. Henry had him by now. Oh, of course, yes. Perkin was brought in for de Ayala to see. Well, presumably, did they know each other? They would have, yes, because mm. Perkin was at court with James quite often. Yeah. I don't have... evidence, but on the same days, they were at court with James. Mm. So I would assume, since they're both there with James, they would have been both in the same room at some point. De Ayala then returned to Scotland, but came back to England in May of 1498. At this point, he was still saying he was the ambassador to Scotland and was only in London for business. And then he began networking with the diplomats in London. So London is very influential at this point in time, mostly because of its wealth. Yeah. There are diplomats from practically every European country in England. And he starts meeting all of them and schmoozing is the only word (laughs) I can say. Well, he sounds like a good schmoozer. Yes. There are reports of parties, of gambling, of hunting trips with all these diplomats. He's really making friends with everybody he can. So was Puebla not, he wasn't doing that? No, Puebla was, first off, not at the same social status. He was not a nobleman. And that would make a big difference to them. 
Yes, because mm. all the diplomats, well, most of the diplomats that were in England were noblemen. You would want to associate with people of your own class. And de Puebla wasn't that, whereas de Ayala was. Mm. And apparently he had enough money to entertain a lot of people. Okay. This schmoozing could be for several reasons, but some of the papers, it makes it appear that James just didn't like the ambassadors from the other countries and kept sending them back after a short stay. Scotland did not have a large diplomatic community because of this. With James not enjoying having them around, they just kept leaving. I think this may be the first and only time De Ayala would have a chance to really network with a bunch of diplomats. Did James just not trust foreigners? He just didn't want them in his court in case they were up to no good? I can't answer that. Mm. I don't know. I just see that there were only two resident ambassadors in Scotland. One was France and the other one was the Netherlands. I'm not sure why trade maybe yeah. mm. but i didn't go too far into that because i was focused on de Ayala. Mm. so because scotland didn't have a large diplomatic community i think that may be one of the reasons why he started doing all that networking in london in london his career could flourish in a way that it never could if he stayed in scotland yeah yeah i mean if you're a dip diplomat and you've got no one to diplomat with. You're not. Yeah, you're not really a diplomat. Yeah. You're just a playboy. <laughs> That's it. A playboy. That's what he is. He did like the ladies. Did he? Well, playboys, yes. yeah, in playboyness, you don't normally brawl and trash the place, do you? You did at this point in time. Oh, maybe. We're still at the point where uh, younger sons would create groups of marauding bands to get wealth. <laughs> so once in London, De Ayala decided he was going to stay in London. There was more to offer for him in England. Scotland was not as wealthy as England. The mm -hmm. accommodations were out of date and not as comfortable, according to De Ayala. The wine was apparently better in England and flowed more freely. The manners Nobody of likes the alcohol in Scotland, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> no. The manners of England were considered to be more cultured, though it seems more cultured really meant that they were more like the manners on the continent. Mm. And how much of this was just rubbing it in De Puebla's face? <laughs> just saying, I'm here. That has to be part of it. Mm. De Ayala managed to endear himself to the other diplomats as well. He even was requested and did approach Henry to retain the Milanese ambassador as a resident ambassador when he was going to be sent back. And Henry agreed and changed his mind and kept the Milanese ambassador. So he was already slightly influential with Henry within the first couple of months. That had to have put de Puebla's back up. I would have thought so. How close was de Puebla to Henry? Mm, not very. In fact, there are jokes about him. So Daela's just muscled his way in. Yes, in two different ways. He's now influencing Henry, but he's also taken the money for that. That would have nice. been an introduction that de Puebla could have gotten paid for. Mm. So he's hitting de Puebla in two ways right there, in one action. James was obviously missing de Ayala's company. He repeatedly wrote to De Ayala, asking him to return. <laughs> so yes, they were friends. My mm. best friend has left. 
first just to be with him, and then later to advise him on the proposed marriage to Margaret Tudor. Mm. James wanted him in two ways. He wanted him as a friend, but he also wanted his diplomatic ability and his advice, which again, he's not listening to his counselors. He wants De Ayala to come tell him what to do. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's such a weird situation. Is it just because the counselors are telling him things he doesn't want to hear? And Diana tells him things he does want to hear. I was thinking that that might be a possibility, but then I considered the fact that he got Perkin Warbeck out of James's mm. estimation, and James was willing to give him up when James had been saying, no, I don't want to give him up for so long. So he is convincing James to do stuff that originally he had a different point of view on. Well, it's quite humiliating for James because he's married... Perkin to his cousin, cousin. Isn't it? James's cousin. Yes. And that mm, puts him in a difficult Awkward position. Situation. <laughs> saying, yes. Actually, he's not who I thought he was. He can go. Except mm. he's family now. Yeah. Mm. De Ayala's responses to the letters. <sighs> okay. I couldn't find anything from Dayella's responses to James. Those were not kept. The only reason that we know he did respond is because James is replying to comments that were made. You know how you can mm. see yeah. in a letter a response? So it appears that they could be somewhere. I'm just, I'm hoping that they are somewhere and they just haven't been digitized yet. But Dayella refused to come back but apparently his reasons were sound but he was willing to continue to help with the treaty and was instrumental in james accepting margaret through those dispatches and through those letters so i really wish we had those letters we would have gotten so much more of what day ayala was like mm. i think but we don't have them presumably he he managed to convince james that he was schmoozing on James's behalf down in London. Probably. Mm. But to be able to convince him to take somebody he doesn't want to wife from a distance tells mm. you that he's got to be very convincing. Mm. It's really, I would love to see those letters just to see how they came out to the point where James was willing to change his mind and take on a wife that could possibly be his lifetime partner. Yeah. Hmm. I did not find any evidence anywhere that Dayala returned to Scotland permanently, ever. Oh, James must have been mortified. Yeah. Sad. Mm. I lost my best friend. Yeah, and you'd already lost Perkins. I mean, they got on well for a while, didn't they? Yeah. Dayala and James do continue to communicate for the rest of James's life. Oh. So it is a friendship that does somehow continue. Hmm. We are still in 1498. Henry is still unhappy with De Ayala, and now he's in England. He suspected De Ayala's part in the Scottish raids may have been more than what De Ayala was willing to admit while he was in England. I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> we have absolutely no idea how De Ayala managed to resolve this with Henry. We do know that De Puebla was infuriated that Henry let this go. Hmm. Yeah, because he was probably dripping poison into Henry's ear about day The entire time. <laughs> and then Henry just said, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, and if you think about it, de Puebla has been there for a very long time. It's almost a decade now that he's been in England. 
And he's never done anything at all, ever, in the contrary interest of Henry in order to make sure that he was influential. Here's a guy who physically raided and killed people in England. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that and he just nice. pops down for a few months and suddenly he's... He's happy. Best of buds. You're nice. Yes. Yeah. I can see, I can understand Puebla. I mean, <laughs> so can I. It sounds, yes, you'd be absolutely furious. Yes, but this is where I got the idea of a scamp. Mm. He's so charismatic that everybody seems drawn to him, like almost like a moth to a flame. You're going to get burned. You don't know when, mm -hmm. but you like them so much that you go anyway. Mm. Whereas De Puebla is coming across as being a bit stolid, a bit, a bit boring, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Very stodgy. Mm. That's what I kept thinking. He's stodgy. I don't know. We may be totally wrong. I'm only looking at these through the dispatches of De Ayala because we do have De Puebla coming later. Well, we always like to make um, assumptions about people that are yes, over overturned <laughs> when we come to do the episode. Makes it more fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I can't wait for your Ferdinand one now. <laughs> yeah, no, he's going to be a model, model husband and father. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, I hope not. If that's the model father, we're in trouble. What I can't tell you is how De Ayala managed to stay in England. He somehow managed to convince Henry that he had credentials for re remaining as an ambassador in England. Is he Scottish or Spanish now? He is Spanish still. Right. We know that he had credentials because Henry accepted him as a Spanish ambassador, and that usually required a writ from the monarchs of the origin country for all ambassadors. You couldn't just show up and say you were an ambassador. But was it normal to have two ambassadors from the same country? No, unless they came as a team mm. or were requested well, by one team. ambassador to have somebody as a backup. No. They are most definitely not a team. Yeah, Henry accepted him as an ambassador for Spain, mm. not Scotland, for Spain. He was now a Spanish ambassador in England. De Ayala loved this. Mm. For one thing, he found it easier to undermine and tease de Puebla when they were in the same country. There were other Spanish representatives at court. They were not ambassadors. They were there for trade negotiation, which is usually a merchant, a Spanish merchant coming and wanting to do specific trade. But they are technically representatives of Spain. They were under the impression that Diala was in London for his health, not as a diplomat, but he was acting as a diplomat. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't know why he's so influential other than his personality. Polydor met him at this time and commented that Deala was clever, but not a scholar. So it's a different sort of clever. <laughs> yes. Cunning. Yes. Henry appears to have enjoyed his company. It makes the world a difference, isn't it? I mean, we've said, <laughs> how could Perkin have got away with what he did for so long? People liked mm -hmm. him. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It makes all the difference. And if people yes. don't like De Puebla, he's, yeah. Well, Henry was willing to talk business with De Puebla, but he kept his company with De Ayala. Mm. And he probably told De Ayala things he didn't tell De Puebla because they were drinking Buddies. and gambling together. And Yes, mm. especially when the drink starts flowing. Yeah, it was off guard. 
he'd hear all sorts of things that De Pueblo's not going to hear, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. And he's going to have more company with courtiers than De Pueblo would. Yeah. Because De Pueblo was still having to put in the formal requests to meet with Henry. De Ayala was with Henry when he gambled, just like James. When he hunted, just like James. He hawked with Henry and was quite popular at hawking, apparently. And they drank. They drank. They drank. It must have been, <laughs> there must have been moments when De Puebla had put in a, a writ for, a, or a chit for, for saying, I want to come and talk to the king. And yes. then eventually he'd get in there and there'd be De Ayala sitting, <laughs> sitting there with, <laughs> with his bottle of wine. <laughs> oh, could you imagine? Or being denied. I'm sorry, I'm out gambling with De Ayala <laughs> today. I'm not in today. And he'd look in through the window and think, but I can see, and I can see him. <laughs> uh, this is quite a, it would make a good, it'd make a good drama, wouldn't it? It would. Mm. Between the two of them, so much backstabbing. <laughs> Diala comes across definitely as behaving as a younger son of a nobleman while he was in England. Henry, like James, paid for some of the damages <laughs> <laughs> that occurred. He looked away when Diala got into, quote unquote, riotous brawls in London. Diala's staff that were killed in the raids had been replaced by some Scots and more Spaniards. And Henry even bailed a few of them out of jail for Diala when they got themselves into trouble and arrested. Extraordinary. You I didn't think of, I would have thought Henry would be completely shocked at this. And perhaps I've got <laughs> completely not. the wrong wrong idea of him. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me wonder, especially when you think currently our morals definitely would not put this as appropriate for a bishop. He's a member of the Catholic clergy. Oh, I've forgotten he's a bishop. Yeah, I keep forgetting that bit. <laughs> Everybody forgets he's a bishop. <laughs> I mean, he's a member of the Catholic clergy and he's a high up member of the mm. Catholic clergy. And he is doing all of this. De Puebla claimed in a letter to the Spanish monarchs that De Ayala's servants even killed an Englishman in one of those brawls, and Henry got them off. The killer was a Scottish chaplain. <laughs> but was the pers person who killed, was it a commoner? It was a commoner. Oh, well, that doesn't count. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> I just, as a Scottish chaplain in service to a Canary Island bishop, killed somebody in a drunken brawl. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a lot more fun in the uh, in the in the clergy than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> when you've just got to do jumble sales and. Uh, <laughs> oh man! And the only punishment for that Scottish clergyman, yeah, he was forced to return to Scotland. That's it. Yeah, you have to go home. You killed one of us. <laughs> Oh, we right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to bed without supper. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. When Catherine entered England, oh, this is where de Puebla must have really been just losing his mind. Don Pedro de Ayala was the one on hand to greet her. He's been setting this up for years, Puebla. Yes. <laughs> he is the one that was requested to travel with Lord Willoughby de Brooke mm -hmm. to act as liaison and translator for Catherine. 
in the English court. Do we play a game at the end of this? Who killed Pedro? <laughs> yeah, because... <laughs> no, we do not. Oh, that's a pity. I think I've got that one. <laughs> yes. It sort of makes sense if you were talking about status. De Ayala was declared at this point as the papal pronotary to England. That means he is the papal representative at the English court. So he's representing Spain, Scotland, and And the the Pope Pope now in England. Hmm. Technically, Dr. de Puebla was the official ambassador to England and should have been the one to greet the princess. Yeah. De Ayala was a nobleman, a clergyman, a representative of the Pope, and a representative of multiple... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we find out the two reasons why de Puebla was not liked. Okay. He was a doctor, which means he's educated. He was a converso. No. Oh. He is full Jewish. He never converted. Oh, right. Is that why he's not liked? That's why he's not liked. Well, that means poor. So poor that there are jokes that he only shows up to court at dinner time so he can eat. Hmm. The two were constantly battling for influence and power, and there's just no way to match them. You've got a commoner going up against a nobleman. Yeah. You've got a rich person and a poor person who can't entertain in the same way. Then you've got a Catholic in a Catholic world, and one is Jewish. Mm. De Pueblo really could not compete, regardless of the fact that he was an expert in law, regardless of the fact that he was very well respected for his intelligence, there was just nothing there that was going to make him outrank de Ayala in any way, regardless of the fact that he was the resident ambassador. It comes down to prejudice. Yeah. Mm. I feel desperately sorry for him. Yeah. Jews in England, like everywhere else in Europe, were discriminated against. De Puebla, after de Ayala's appearance in England, had to all of a sudden... So before this, he was tolerated. He's an ambassador. He does deserve some respect. But now de Ayala is there. They have an alternative. Mm. So now de Puebla was also now enduring sneers, attitude, exclusion, jokes about his race, some of the jokes emanating from King Henry himself. Ferdinand and Isabella refused to take de Ayala's charges against de Puebla's He made so many accusations against de Puebla. The fact that he was still going to the synagogue, that he was... Was there a synagogue in London? Because I thought the Jews were expelled from Edward the first time till Oliver Cromwell. Sort of. Mm. When I say going to synagogue, they still had services. They just did it in a home instead of in a church. So he is still doing his religious duties, which Mm. Isabella was not okay with. But de Puebla was so well-versed that she – it's another one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I can can tolerate this because you're doing good. Mm. But then when they got an alternative, they don't need to tolerate it. No. Isabella and Ferdinand stuck with de Puebla. Good. He was not expelled. They kept him in his position regardless of the fact that... He probably wished he could be expelled, though. It must have been such an awkward situation (sighs) to be in. Wouldn't it have been? Mm. But he also can't return without permission from his monarchs. Mm. So it's a very awkward position. You may not be having a great time, but the monarchs won't take you back. 
if they think you're still worth staying there. And he knows there's nothing he can do that's going to shock them because Dayal has done it all. He tried. He sent <laughs> so many missives complaining about his behavior and asking for him to be recalled. Nothing happened. Mm. Well, sort of. De Ayala was undermining de Puebla, saying he wasn't being all completely honest in his dispatches and trying to get rid of him. Kath, uh, Isabella and Ferdinand felt it was just rivalry, which, I mean, honestly, it was. So they kept de Puebla in his position. They did attempt to recall de Ayala, but not to Spain. They tried to send him back to Scotland. Mm. But Henry liked him and found the competition, shall we call it, entertaining. Oh, dear. And required that he stay. That is, that's quite, oh, uh, I don't like that. I, I know. Like the idea that he's watching this poor bloke being pummeled effectively. Well, he was joining in. Some yeah. of the jokes were about, he was joking, it's dinner time, we should see de Puebla soon. Oh, dear. Yeah, and remarks oh. about the fact that he was Jewish. Mm. De Ayala did not like De Puebla. De Puebla did not like De Ayala. De Ayala meddled in every single business interaction that De Puebla was involved in, including the ones that were him trying to retain income. He would tell somebody that had approached De Puebla for legal advice, oh, no, De Puebla doesn't know what he's talking about. Do this instead. And because he has the charisma to actually interact with the person they're talking to, he could get results without having to go through de Puebla. So he was slowly eroding de Puebla's influence everywhere. I'm not seeing this man as a scamp. <laughs> now, no. If <laughs> no. you take out the part about de Puebla, it's funny. Mm. But yeah, de Puebla wasn't helping himself, though. He was doing the same thing to de Ayala. So it wasn't all one way. The only reason it was worse for de Puebla was because he was Jewish. Mm. And he was losing. <laughs> and he was losing. Yeah. So it feels awkward. But if we go from mm. de Puebla's point of view, he did everything he could to ruin de Ayala's life, not just his professional career, which I guess de Ayala is doing exactly the same thing. So they're both mm. at fault. De Ayala also began openly disputing precedents based on their social status rather than their ambassadorial cred credentials. Because if you remember, he's not the resident ambassador to England. He's still mm. the ambassador to Scotland. This is sneaky. Technically, as the Spanish ambassador to Scotland, de Puebla should outrank him. But as a don, the honorific title for a gentleman of status, de Ayala outranked de Puebla. But that should not have been the case for presidents in England official duties. No, because he should be in Scotland. Yes, but mm. it worked. Yeah, because they're, you're in a court. So, I mean, yep. who, are, who are they going to listen to? The commoner, who is Jewish, or the mm. nobleman, who's Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. De Ayala also spent a great deal of time undermining de Puebla by making jokes about him being Jewish. And he encouraged the English nobility in the court to do the same. De Puebla was not dumb. He was well-educated and was known for being able to conquer intricate legal problems. But unfortunately, he lost his head at the jokes. And he began raging under the taunting of Dayala in public to the people who were making jokes at him, which you know just eggs them on. Once they get a reaction it out of it. It does, you. but yeah. I mean, what's he meant to do? Just stand there and let them all come at him? I don't know, but yeah. his raging ended up further weakening his reputation 
diplomats mm. were still supposed to be calm and level-headed, and he's not. And he's not mm. in front of the people he's supposed to be an ambassador to, which does not work so well. He got the teasing to such an extent that there's an author and historian, Garrett Mattingly, which really puts it into perspective and also makes me cringe. It became, as he called it, a popular sport at court. Ooh. Yeah. This is bullying in the workplace. Very it? much so. <laughs> and we do see these battles in state papers. De Puebla would claim that De Ayala was not the official ambassador and intruding, which he was, that he was impertinent, <laughs> incompetent, which he was, and that he wasn't loyal to the Spanish court. That one we can't prove. Mm. But it's something that would make Isabella and Ferdinand go, hmm. Well, I should think so, because he's got such a sort of stretched loyalty with Spain, Scotland, England, and the Pope. Yes, three masters. Hmm. De Puebla repeatedly asks for De Ayala to be ordered back to Spain, and if not Spain, at least get him back into Scotland. So what's happened to the negotiations that they were meant to be doing together? <laughs> De Ayala is doing them all by himself. He's excluding De Puebla now, right. even though De Puebla is still trying to be in there. De Ayala masterfully twisted the situation by stating that De Puebla only wanted De Ayala out of England so De Puebla could sell out Spain unobserved. He's claiming that De Puebla is trying to arrange the treaties in Henry's benefit rather than the Spanish monarch's benefit. Mm. Yeah, they're both claiming the other one isn't loyal. It must have been infuriating for Isabella because how can she tell? I mean, see, she can't. She's not there. Mm. In person, De Puebla let everyone know that De Ayala was not versed in law or Latin, making him unqualified to be an ambassador, and his behavior was a disgrace. All true. Every single <laughs> bit of it is true. <sighs> De Ayala was able to counter this with the fact that De Puebla was penny-pinching and coming around for dinners because he was so poor he didn't have to pay for food if he only came and visited people when they were eating. Hmm which is true, but possibly because de Puebla hadn't been paid for three years. Mm. And de Ayala didn't need to be paid. Yes. Mm. Author Mattingly claims that de Ayala would remark that, and I didn't find it, probably because it's not digitized, but, quote, the doctor's penny-pinching and meanness would be surprising in an ambassador were it not so obvious that de Puebla was a Jew. End quote. Hmm. Is that a co comment from... De Ayala or... That's De Ayala else. speaking of De Puebla. And mm. like I said, I couldn't find it, but that's because it, it probably mm. isn't digitized, but he has a source for it in a, not a state paper, but in a letter. Mm. Henry found De Ayala helpful in the diplomacy with both Scotland and Spain. And so he wrote to the Catholic monarchs that De Ayala should stay regardless of De Puebla, at least until the princess arrived. And he's explaining that because he gets along with him and so does James, he's the ultimate ambassador, even though De Puebla is technically the resident ambassador. Yeah, I mean, it makes it, that makes a perfect sense, doesn't it? Yes, if, it if does. He can talk to both parties. Yes. And he can represent you to both parties rather than just one person representing you to just England and one person representing you to Scotland. Henry yeah. is making this almost a cost-effectiveness <laughs> argument. <laughs> surprise, surprise. 
He also mentions that Catherine would probably appreciate his company more than de Puebla's in a strange country because de Ayala was a courtier, would have been brought up to act appropriately with the princess. And since de Puebla seems to be a straight-laced sort of man with little, little humor, de Ayala would probably be the better one to calm her fears by being more friendly. Mm-hmm. And she, he's the same religion as she is. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, that wasn't mentioned in there. <laughs> he didn't mention that. Dariala was considered flamboyant and raucous and better company than de Puebla in England. For a young princess, though. I mean, it's woman, womanizing, brawling, drunken bishop. <laughs> that's not mentioned. Diplomatically, that's not mentioned. De Ayala used his obvious charm when he met Catherine to turn her against de Puebla, of course. Mm. De Ayala traveled with Catherine to London, regaling her with stories of his life, Scotland, incorrect histories of the areas they were going through. <laughs> He's just making stuff up. And little snide comments about de Puebla. When the king's procession caught up with Catherine's entourage... It was de Ayala that was chosen to tell King Henry that no one could see her according to Spanish custom. Oh, right. Yes, I remember this bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Spanish custom that Catherine could not be seen until after she was married when the veil was removed by anybody. Hmm. I can imagine de Ayala was actually amused with this since he would have known Henry and he didn't push the issue. Catherine's duenna, Donna Elvira Manuel, did and failed. When Henry said to her that they would see her regardless of whether or not she was in bed, because that's what Donna Elvira claimed, De Ayala apparently laughed heartily at the comments. He thought this was a great joke. And Henry yes. found it funny. Mm, not for her, though. No. Poor little, poor little mite. Yes. Oh. Yeah, because he was just going to barge into the bedroom and drag her out of bed, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Mm. Although I did find in this that Catherine was already up and being dressed by the ladies just in case. Mm. So she hadn't actually gone to bed. She had retired to her chamber, but she hadn't gone to bed. Yeah, but he didn't know that. <laughs> no, he didn't. Yeah. No, he didn't. We know that De Ayala was later involved in the situation of Catherine's plate and jewels being claimed as part of her dowry, but we do not have much more about that information. And I didn't find access to the marriage treaty. De Puebla is saying that the plate and jewels are not part of her dowry and that they're hers. De Ayala is saying, yes, they are, but she's still starving, so she needs to sell something in order to eat. They're both arguing back and forth, and neither one of them really helping. And I wish I could find access to the marriage treaty to find out if, if they were part of her her dowry, because usually it was. Hmm. You have a third is money, a third is land, and a third is jewels and plate. That's usually the way the dowries went. But I couldn't find it. It always bugs me. Each sale, though, was pushing back the date of her wedding because they were part of her dowry. So we're now past the time that Arthur has passed away. And now we've got Henry, and she can't be married to Henry until the dowry is fully paid. Mm. Every time she sells something, that means she needs more money from Ferdinand. But Ferdinand is unwilling to give any money whatsoever. Ferdinand's not going to... No. Mm -hmm. Mm. Catherine was in desperate straits. We're talking about her eating fish that's several days old because that's all they could afford. Oh, don't do that. 
Yeah. When Philip of Burgundy then landed in England, Pedro Diala was in attendance. <laughs> Catherine managed to speak to him of her troubles, giving, trying to bring him over onto her side. And he was moved enough that he risked his position by writing Ferdinand pleading her case. And as we know, Ferdinand did not like people telling him what to do. No. He'd had enough of that. <laughs> yes. Ferdinand, if annoyed, could dismiss De Ayala without even providing transportation back home and could strip him of all of his wealth. So he was risking stuff. Ferdinand replied that Catherine's dowry must come from King Philip. Isabella has passed away. Ferdinand is saying, well, she's not my daughter. The original treaty was negotiated by Isabella, so that's Castilian problems, not Aragon's problem. So she needs to go to Philip for the money. And Philip's on his way to become King of Castile. Yes. But this is, it's a bit confusing because he came when Philip and he was there when Philip and Juana washed up there, but he was also there later when there was a visit. Apparently there was a visit that we didn't get to. Ferdinand was blaming Philip for not completing the dowry, and Philip was saying it was the responsibility of her father to pay the dowry. Hmm. You can see both arguments, but it doesn't help Catherine. De Ayala, he successfully completed the treaty that married Margaret Tudor to James of Scotland. He also attended Catherine at her wedding. After that, De Ayala was ordered back to Spain in September after the wedding. Isabella had passed away. Yeah. And Ferdinand wanted him back. He said he needed him with him. I don't know what the relationship is between him and Ferdinand. I do know that he is fiercely loyal to Ferdinand later. But it implies that they had a relationship prior to him coming to Scotland in the first place. The hmm. fact that Ferdinand had wanted him back in court to be his advisor. So it's nothing to do with the feud between De Ayala and De Puebla. No, De Puebla never won that argument. <laughs> Ayala was only brought back because he wanted him there, not because he didn't like what he was doing. I bet De Puebla is quite pleased to see him go, though. Uh, he might not be pleased with the fact that Henry appointed de Ayala as Archdeacon of London and the Prebendary of Caddington Minor as a parting gift. No, I don't suppose he would. <laughs> <laughs> he just got two sinecure incomes, Archdeacon mm. of London, just because Henry liked him. De yeah, Pueblo was it's, never it's... given a sinecure. It's odd to give someone a job just as they're leaving the country, but there we go. Yes, but there's another one of those times where a monarch gives you an income when you're leaving so that you can also act for them in that court. Mm. I suppose giving you a sinecure is you're saying, no, I'm not, I'm not bribing him. I'm just paying him what he, what he deserves, what he deserves. because of this job. Yes. Mm. Yes. Let's see how it works. Okay. Yes. We lose track of him a bit here. We know he was in Flanders, and you mentioned that in the Maximilian episode. Apparently, it was regretted that they moved him there because they started losing control of England. If you remember, Ferdinand and Henry VII were not getting along at this point, and Ferdinand no, thought that De Ayala was actually a better placement there. Henry was doing all sorts of sneaky bits, but saying to Ferdinand, it's okay, the wedding's still on, and then saying something different to somebody else and something different to Philip. Yes, and arranging a marriage with the French mm. 
daughter and then also a French princess and possibly Juana and Philip's daughter. Hmm. All over the place. De Ayala again successfully ingratiated him, himself and became the resident ambassador with Emperor Maximilian uh-huh. at Bruges. I think Maximilian would like him. Uh, sure sounds like it. He'll join <laughs> you in anything. De Ayala was able to revisit England when he was with Philip and Juana during their visit, though he did return to Spain and was then added to King Philip's court. So this is 1505. Isabella has passed away and Castile and Aragon have split. Henry has given him that sinecure and was trying to get the dowry and everything figured out. To further complicate the situation, King Philip and Queen Juana had their own separate factions at court that fought each other. Mm. If you remember, Juana is now basically imprisoned. King Philip hasn't died yet, but he is trying to become full king of Spain, fighting against Juana's faction and fighting against Ferdinand's faction. Yep. Henry's trying to negotiate through this minefield to get more of the dowry for Catherine, and he turns to De Ayala. He provided him additional funds, and the livings that were mentioned earlier were increased. Unfortunately for Henry, De Ayala was fully loyal to Ferdinand. There was no question of him ever being on Philip's side, which is another reason why I think that maybe they were friends before De Ayala went to Scotland. And instead of helping Henry's envoys, he ensured that they were entangled in every court conflict and court intrigue at Philip's court that he possibly could to delay them because he did not want this negotiation to end and for Ferdinand to be forced to pay any money. Hmm. Ferdinand is arguing that with Aragon and Castile split, Aragon does not have the money to complete the dowry, which is sort of true. Castile and Aragon together were very wealthy. Hmm. Aragon itself was not. And when they were all together, they were also drawing on the money that they were getting from Naples. Yeah. But Deayala was um, writing to Ferdinand before saying, do send the dowry. I know, but he changed hmm. back. Okay. Once he was out of England, I think maybe it's one of those things where if you've got a woman crying in front of her, yeah, you want to be kinder to her. You happen to, <laughs> to look at her sad little face. Yes. <laughs> Seeing her getting thinner and thinner. Yes. And raggedy as her mm. clothing apparently was becoming tattered. For Catherine, this further delayed her marriage to Prince Henry. So he's actually working against poor Catherine. Everybody was working against poor Catherine. <sighs> if Ferdinand could not be convinced to act on behalf of his daughter and provide the dowry, and the Castile faction was deterred, her dowry would never be paid. Ferdinand's already saying, I don't have the money, and now Philip is trying to keep it so Philip can't give the money to Henry because then Henry and Philip may create a diplomatic alliance against Ferdinand. Right. Okay. Even though he's getting paid by Henry, he yep. is not helping him. He's going fully against him. No. We can see at some point while in England... De Ayala had met Prince Henry VIII and had made a good impression on him. In 1509, he actually wrote specifically to De Ayala and to Ferdinand, because Philip is gone now, mm -hmm. asking him to return to England to become the resident ambassador. Is De Puebla still there? I don't know. Yeah. I am not sure. There's uh, a couple of different ambassadors that have gone through here. No, De Puebla passed away, and it was, oh, I can't remember the name of the other guy. 
But the other guy enraged Henry VII so much in his last days that he was told that he would never be seen again. I'm trying to remember what ambassador that was. Oh, uh, Lopez de Mendoza. De Puebla had left due to illness and age. I don't know what happened to De Puebla because that's his episode. We'll go back to 1509. Henry is trying to get De Ayala back. Ferdinand replied on behalf of De Ayala, explaining that he was too sick to travel. And that was the only reason he was not chosen to go back as the resident Spanish ambassador. And De Ayala obviously was sick because he passed away two years later, although we're not sure of what, but he did pass away in bed. If that was two years later, it wasn't necessarily particularly <laughs> No, but it could have been... Yeah, it, it could have been a long time. It one. is mentioned that it, he was sick with the disease that took his life. Right. So whatever it was, God, it could be anything. Mm. <laughs> Syphilis. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't know, gout or anything. We don't have a lot of detail of him when he wasn't an ambassador, so unfortunately we don't have anything he won't be the us. only. He won't be the only bishop with syphilis, I wouldn't think. No, no. But yes, we do know that that was the end of his diplomacy because he's now passed away, even though he was still with... Ferdinand was very fond of him mm. up until the day he died, and it appears that Henry was as well. So it's a little scattered because we've got chunks of him and then chunks where it's missing, but yeah, quite a riot. Yes. It's, it's good he's got de Puebla as a foil, really, for, for the story, at least. Yes. Not for yes. poor de Puebla, but it certainly makes a better story. Otherwise, it would have just been normal diplomacy. Yes. yes. Before we raid him, I actually love the fact that we have many of his own words, and I wanted to include some of them. Mm -hmm. Because we have the state papers and his personal letters in a few cases. De Ayala declared in a letter to Ferdinand and Isabella regarding King Henry... The king looks old for his years, but young for the sorrowful life he has led. This is after he's lost his wife and his eldest son. In another letter, he revealed although Henry had many qualities that would have rendered him great, he had but one characteristic which spoilt all the rest. That is his love of money. He later remarks, the king of England is less rich than generally said. He likes to be thought very rich because such a belief is advantageous to him in many respects. The king himself said to me that it is his intention to keep his subjects low because riches would only make them haughty. Yes, I remember that quote. <laughs> so now we know that, yes, it was Henry's idea for some of those Empson and Dudley issues. Mm. Empson and Dudley are also mentioned. Ooh. The activities of these two men were known throughout the court as Don Pedro de Ayala reported to Ferdinand and Isabella that Henry's servants had... Quote, a wonderful dexterity in getting a hold of other people's money, end quote. Mm. Well, that's certainly true. Yes. And then, of course, we can also tie him to John Cabot. As the ambassador of the Catholic king at the court of Henry VII, Pedro de Ayala, and that's how he wrote it. He's the ambassador of the Catholic king at the court of Henry VII. In his letter, that's how he titles himself. Wrote about mm -hmm. John Cabot on July 25th, 1498. Oh, my birthday. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> oh, cool. But the discoverer is another Genoese who has lived in Seville and Lisbon trying to find some help for realizing this discovery. Mm. So, yes, we do have some of his own words that come through. Mm. It was very fun to learn about him. Mm. I mean, some of it was cringeworthy, yes. but from a distance, it's hilarious. 
It is. And the cr- unfortunately, the cringeworthy stuff is the, is the story, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because you it just is. think, oh, dear, poor Puebla. And you can see each situation, how it, this humorless, stodgy man and this, this person that everybody finds hilarious. And you can just imagine. It's a bit like yeah. Mozart Salieri from the film Amadeus. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, if it wasn't for, you know, we, for me, I started feeling cringeworthy when it specifically started taking him on as if he was, the Jewish part of him was the part that was mm. objectionable. Yeah. Other than that, it just seems like two people who really don't get along. Yeah, that just added a really unpleasant <laughs> flavor to Taste the thing. Yeah. Yeah, but if we're going to look at it from the other side, apparently De Puebla was even worse. Right. Okay. Well, I feel sorry for him at the moment, but when we do him, perhaps I shall change completely. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I could ever feel sorry for De Ayala. It sounds like he was having a riotous time. No, I don't feel sorry. Bad choice of words. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter because he got people to pay for the damages. (laughs) Yes, somebody else always did. That poor commoner that got killed, though. They don't count. Doesn't matter. <laughs> nope. Not at all. And fibbly. Mm. I think there are several cases that can be made for intrigue. He found a way to ingratiate himself with every influential person he came across. Diplomats, monarchs, noblemen, you name it. And everybody liked him, which meant he could get away with things. I mean, he raided England, and there are a few hints that he kept quite a bit of the booty that he found. Did he kill anybody? Found. Found, found yes. <laughs> found in other people's houses. I, I don't know. It doesn't mention it, but if he, if he got booty, yeah. you were only able to keep that if you were part of the fighting force, I thought. It's not good, anyway. No. Hmm. I can't state that he did keep the booty as a fact. I found no mention of an inventory or confirmation, so we can take that with a grain of salt. But we do know he was there. We do know that he joined in on the raid. Is that intrigue or is that just somebody saying, well, you're going to do what? Oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Count me in. The reason I'm counting that as intrigue is because he got away with it when he got to Henry's court. Mm. How did he do that? Yeah, I raided your country. And killed, possibly, your people and stole their money. Yes. Yes. But he managed to convince Henry that it was not quite true. Mm. And for me, lying is intrigue. Mm. Yeah. He managed to become an ambassador to England without official papers or any actual permission from his own monarchs. And he was there for a very long time. Yeah, the intrigue bit with him seems a bit odd because he just seems so open, doesn't he? He just yes. says, yeah, that's what I've done. Yeah. So shoot me. <laughs> yeah. And yet people so, like him. Yes. Intrigue, I feel, happens in darkened, darkened corridors, but it doesn't with him. It happens over the dinner table and drinks over the gambling table. And... Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Ferdinand and Isabella knew he was in England, and even with de Puebla trying everything he could to get rid of de Ayala, de Ayala was allowed to stay. Mm. That's intrigue, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's 
it's massive, really, isn't it? I mean, yes. he's just he's getting away constantly with things he really oughtn't to be doing. Yeah, like murder. <laughs> that was the chaplain. <laughs> well, in he's that case, it was the chaplain. Merely an accessory. But yes. if he killed anybody on a raid. Yeah. And he was constantly brawling and drinking, and he was supposed to be a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> We've done the Pope. We're immune to that sort of thing now. <laughs> yes, we really are, aren't we? Um, I'm going to go for a seven, I think. Okay, I'm... Just because it doesn't seem... It's not behind closed doors. I like my intrigue to be clandestine, I think. that's, And he's just upfront about everything. See, and I was thinking a nine because he's done his intrigue in full view of absolutely everybody, with everybody knowing what he was doing, and he still gets away with it somehow. He does. And I think that's actually yeah. more impressive than if you did something behind closed doors and nobody figured out about it. Mm. All right, eight. Eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm easily convinced, I think. <laughs> that's 17 from Fibbly. Yeah. Antiperistasis. Well, he sort of went up because he took on jobs that weren't actually his, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) You could say that he soared. He began as a member of an influential family, though Don is an honorific for him. It's not actually a title, and he has no lands as a younger son. He has a family allowance Mm. as a younger son, but no lands himself. Through his diplomacy and court dealings, he became a papal prothonotary, the bishop of the Canary Islands, prebendary of Caddington Minor, archdeacon of London. So he had quite comfortable living for himself by the end of this. He was well-liked by James, by Henry, by Ferdinand. We apparently find out that he was well-liked by Maximilian as well. Although Maximilian didn't have any money to give him. (laughs) No, No, but I can see those two together, yeah. He has influence with so many heads of state Mm. that like him and want to spend time with him. So while he doesn't have a ton of money, like he's obviously wealthy, but how many people have influence with that many monarchs? Mm. I'm not quite sure how to rate this, though. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we're used to someone having one position in life yes. and changing. So you go from an earl to a duke or a duke to a commoner or yeah. something like that. You're going up and down a set pattern. Yeah. Whereas this is a bit different. This is this is very different. It still mm. feels like an increase, mm. but it's not measurable in any way in no. monetary. I'm going to go with a six. I think it's worth, yeah. Okay. I'm actually going to go for a seven because mm. even yeah. in his older years, Henry VIII asked for him to come back as a resident ambassador. Mm. And I didn't find many people that were, after they had retired from a country, requested to come back again. So mm. his influence was really high. On a monarch that he was never supposed to be an ambassador to. (laughs) (laughs) Martyrdom. Uh, I have nothing. I was going to say, I'm not great, I wouldn't have thought. Unless you want to take into account the possible danger he was in by joining in the raids just to 
endear himself to I James. I suppose he wrote to wrote to Ferdinand pleading Catherine's case, yeah. but then a bit later he seems to have dropped her. Yes. So I would say win some, lose some with that yes. one. I'm not going I don't think I'm gonna give him anything because going on a raid, that's not martyrdom. No. <laughs> quite the opposite. <laughs> it might be dangerous, but he was doing it for a laugh. Yes. Nothing. I agree. Nothing from me. I've got a zero <laughs> too, so zero for martyrdom. <laughs> Beijing. This would have an effect, maybe not now, but he was critical in negotiating a peace treaty between Scotland and England. And while the mm. peace did not last centuries, I'm sure people close to the border appreciated the peace that they had for the years oh, so. that they weren't at battle. Yeah, well, especially especially after Ella had moved to London, <laughs> got a bit of, bit of peace from him coming over and raiding them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I was thinking he's he quoted in lots of history books. He is. Him and De Puebla. Yes. Mm. I mean, that's a team, really, isn't it? That's... Yes, it is. In fact, yeah, now that you're saying it, we've, we've got quite a bit of his state papers still, and they are quoted for a variety of the de- negotiations. Mm. And he was, he was in every single Henry VII book we read. Yeah. Um, I don't think it can be huge because Bettine mm. is partly house people. Well, people have heard of him and most people right. have heard of him, I don't no. think. So I think Not I'll go unless with... you're a scholar of this era. Yes. I think I'll go... He's really difficult to rate because he doesn't seem to fit into these categories. Not properly. quite the way somebody else would. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, He's not famous. Nope. I'll go with the five. Five? Mm. I'm not sure You're that's a bit too... Than... Yeah, I was about to say, I'm not sure that's a bit too uh, generous, but... I was giving him a three. Mm. Partly because a lot of the population of Northern England might not exist if they had continued yes. that battles <laughs> with Scotland. Yeah, I'll go with a four. I'll go with a four. A four? Okay, yeah. so that's a seven for Batim. Flaunt of bleeding flaunt. Anything? Nothing. We have Nothing. no pictures. If you do do a Google of Pedro Diala, plenty of pictures will come up. But that's because there are a number of Pedro Lopez de Ayala <laughs> that were influential. It was an influential family. So even if you do diplomat Pedro de Ayala, you'll get the 16th century diplomat from 1670-something to 1700s. You won't actually get him. And you can tell because of the clothing yeah. that it's not the same well, That's very different, yeah. Or you'll get the guy from the 1300s, and it's an etched sketch of him, which apparently is like a great-great-grandfather of his or something. Because, again, they they were an influential family, but no. Sorry. Nothing. Okay. Nope. Nothing. Zero. Zero. That's a zero. So we got a total of 37. Oh, my gosh. He beat Maximilian by one. Did he? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> Oh, poor Maximilian. You can't even beat him that. Bless him. <laughs> oh. oh, the final question, though. Are they too delicious or what? I don't... I don't think so. He's a good really? laugh. He's a good laugh, but he's not... He's not too delicious material, I don't think. Go on, then. What's... You think he is? 
I think he is, but that's because I spent so much time laughing reading yes. about him. Like <laughs> I spent a long time laughing. If you want to giggle a lot when you're doing research, research Pedro de Ayala. Yeah. Or Maximilian. <laughs> yeah. The stories of chairs being thrown through windows during a party. <laughs> it was just, it, it's ridiculous. It sounds like a frat party nonstop. Hmm. And when I say frat party, if you don't know what I mean, I'm talking about U.S. fraternities. It's a almost like a private club at a university that you have to apply to get into, and there's hazing, but then they have a lot of parties throughout the year. Yeah. And that's basically what most of us know them for is the parties. <laughs> um, what, you think yes? Yeah. For what, for what reason, apart from the fact he made you laugh? Just that. It was... We've got somebody that wasn't so serious, didn't seem to take life seriously, yeah, and yet succeeded. And I found no evidence of cruelty in him whatsoever that Ooh, made me I think would... he was cruel to De Puebla. Well, yeah, I meant cruelty like to animals. And... <laughs> yeah. Well, I have here a replica. Oh, what's that one? That's not the one. Use that one. Henry VIII. Hmm. I think it's a groat. Cool. <laughs> I can toss it if you like. Okay, is there choose... heads and tails? Yeah, there's Henry on one side and there's his shield on the other. Okay. And you can see someone's done a bit of a bit of clipping there. <laughs> but it is <laughs> it's only a replica, so, so they've done replica clipping. That's okay. hilarious. Okay. You can call? Shield. Oh. Oh? He's too delicious. Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Pedro Diala, you are too delicious. Well, we still don't know what we're doing with these people at the end, but it's going to be quite interesting. <laughs> pitting, I have a feeling he's going to get away with a lot. Pitting him against, <laughs> pitting him against Margaret Beaufort. Oh, man. At least they gamble together <laughs> and drink. That's true. That's true. Yeah. What am I saying? She's just best buddies. It's probably her saying to Henry, no, keep him on. Yeah. I like him. <laughs> he just gave me a bunch of money. Put on that miserable old so-and-so that we've been stuck with all this time. Oh, that's so cool. God, we haven't had any chew delicious any chew deliciousnesses for ages. And now we've had about three in a row, I think. Um Louis did not get it. So we had the Cornish Louis, Rebellion, not Louis. Not Louis. No. Maximilian, even though we spent the entire time saying, Oh bless him. Yes. <laughs> and Pedro de Ayala. Bless him, he's rubbish. <laughs> okay, pull my next one, pull my next one. Oh, your next one. Magic box. You have got Ah, about time we had one of them. Oh. Thomas Stanley, first Earl of Derby. Ooh. Nice. Mm. That is the husband of Lady Margaret Beaufort. Yeah. So yeah, excellent. That'd be interesting. Good. That's the one that she decided yeah. to become a nun, wasn't it? She did the vow of chastity. <laughs> the poor man. <laughs> well, he agreed to it, so maybe he was thinking. Yes, he did. He did. I'm agree not to that it. interested anymore, frankly. Ah, 
So that is the end of our episode on De Ayala. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for our next episode on Ferdinand. Ferdinand, Ferdinand of Aragon. Unless we've got a special episode. We might have a cameo episode in between that, but... Yeah. Thank you for listening. You can find the details of the podcast and contact us on... And if you would like to join us on Patreon, please do. Mm. Yeah, we've got quite a quite a lot of episodes now. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the eyes are the window of the soul. There is nothing so confining as the prisons of our own perceptions. Goodbye. Goodbye. scamp i admit i party with the best of them put it away a bit it's a bit of a joke it's a bit of fun and games but what does it matter when i'm popular with james what can i say i'm a scamp i confess i've been found on the streets in a state of undress it's a bit of a lark and a bit of mischief and i'm smashing up my room like mick and keith question my lay don't you need someone who puts people at their ease you know i'm just a giver skin sclerosis of the liver but i'm happy to do it if that's what my queen may please would you rather i was as boring as de puebla turning up for dinner and looking like a tramp i give him his due because he's just a lousy jew But none of it matters, I'm just being a scamp.